Well, good morning again. Do you have your Bible this morning? Yes. If you do, turn to Romans chapter 16. If you don't, uh, grab one from the pew rack right there in front of you and turn it to Romans chapter 16. We want to engage God's word together this morning, asking him to speak with power and authority to us in it. Uh, last week, a guy stopped me after the service and he said, he said Chris, i got to be honest with you. When, when I turned uh, in my Bible to Romans 16 where you're going to preach and saw those 26 names, I thought, oh boy, it's going to be a long day. And, uh, and he said, but it was, it was good and uh, there was much for me to learn there. And I hope that we're learning that. I hope that we're seeing that no matter where we turn in the scriptures, no matter what passage we turn to, there is much for us to learn. There is much for us to see. We really do believe that all scripture is inspired by God and profitable to us, right? Not just parts of it, not just the easy parts of it, but all of it is inspired by God and profitable to us. Well, over the last couple of weeks... We've been studying the section of Romans that is really Paul's greetings to the church at Rome. It's been two weeks of affection, two weeks of commendation. We've seen close connection, deep love between Paul and these brothers and sisters in Christ that he's never even really met. Some of them he's seen in passing as they traveled around. Some of them he's heard of by reputation. But regardless, he has a deep love for these folks Particularly last week, we saw Paul call out 26 individuals by name. We saw some things about the church in that whole process. Learned some lessons about what the early church was like and what the church today should be like. We saw that the early church was connected. They were connected in the Lord. That was their common bond. It was because of Jesus they were one. But they were also connected in life. They knew each other and were known by each other. They shared their lives together. And you saw a little bit of that in Sunday school this morning, right? Did you come to Sunday school this morning? Man, it was good, wasn't it? It's good to be in a small group, good to be studying God's word. And you saw that connection of the early church as they shared all of their lives together. They were connected. They were also affectionate. They were affectionate with words. They were affectionate with gestures. We held hands at the end of the service today. One guy from the choir attacked me after the service and kissed me, like really kissed me. Uh, And I am still, I still don't feel good about it. They were affectionate toward one another with their words and with their actions. They were also diverse. It was a diverse group of people, diverse in race, diverse in rank, diverse in gender. We saw that nearly a third of the people mentioned in these 26 names were women. Um, Women were a prominent part of the early church. In fact, a lot of times uh, the Bible gets a bad reputation of demeaning women. What you need to know is that in the context of the first century when the New Testament was written, there was nothing more uh, revolutionary than the way the Bible spoke of treating women, giving them worth and dignity and value and respect. It was, it was way ahead of its time. Um, and God's plan is always good. So it was a connected group, an affectionate group, a diverse group. And in the midst of all those differences, it was a united group. Man, they were different, multicolored, multi-ethnic, multi-language, multiple backgrounds, and yet one body. Because the gospel breaks down dividing walls. It breaks down barrier walls, not just between us and the Lord vertically, but between us and our neighbor horizontally. That means we can get together with folks who have radically different backgrounds, and we can sing, hallelujah, what a savior. He's not just my savior, he's our savior, right? And we want to celebrate that. This week, um, this week is going to be radically different in its tone. 
So far, what we've seen over the last few weeks has been light, it's been happy, it's been encouraging, and all that changes today, and it changes very abruptly. In fact, the change of tone and content is so abrupt, there are some scholars who believe that what we're going to look at today was not originally part of Romans, uh, that it was added later on to the letter just because it sounds so different. And I don't agree with those guys. In fact, I think it fits perfectly with what we've been talking about. I think as Paul has been uh, describing his love and his affection for them, as he's been describing the importance of unity amongst the brothers and sisters in Christ, I think a warning like this is totally appropriate. I think this warning about false teachers who would come in and break the church apart is absolutely a part of what it looks like to love people. And what it looks like to love people is to warn them about dangers that would come their way. So I disagree with the group of scholars who would say this was not originally part of Romans. And I would agree with scholars like John MacArthur who says this. It is the nature of love to warn against harm to those whom it loves. The greatest harm against believers is that which undermines God's truth in which they live. Love is ready to forgive all evil. But it does not condone or ignore evil, especially in the church. Say that again, that's that's good. Love is ready to forgive all evil, but it does not condone or ignore evil, especially in the church. Paul, therefore, found it necessary to insert this caution into his greeting of love. To truly love someone is to strive for what is good for them and to oppose whatever harms them. That is true of husbands and wives' love for each other, of parents for their children, of pastors for their congregations, and of believers for all believers. So this warning, and it's going to be harsh. He's going to say, keep your eye on them and stay away from them. They only care about their bellies, and they're going to tear you up. That is an act of love to say, you need to watch out for some people. You need to be careful of them, and you need to stay away from them is a, is a gesture of love, and we want to go down that road today. So today... We'll see this strong word of warning to the church about false prophets, false teachers, whatever you want to call them, and the trouble that they can cause. And this is found in Romans chapter 16, verses 17 to 20. So let's read that together. This is what the Lord's word says. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have learned, and turn away from them. For such men are slaves, not of the Lord Christ, but of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Let's pray together. God, we recognize the dangers all around us. We recognize that there are opponents to your gospel. And we recognize there are those who would pervert the truth and twist it slightly, infest and invade the church and lead many astray. God, thank you for warning us about this. Thank you for giving us your word as the standard of matters of faith and practice against which we can weigh everything that we hear from a preacher, from a neighbor, from a teacher to see if it's true or not. God, we want to be diligent students of your word. We want to know the truth so that we can see the lie for what it is when it comes, so that we can see the error when it comes our way, so that we can keep an eye on those false teachers and stay away from them. 
So God, I pray that you'll speak to us from your word, that you'll teach us, that you'll grow us in understanding so that we can walk and live for you in all of our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. A scholar named F.F. Bruce notes that this is really the final exhortation of Romans. We've seen lots of calls to action. We've seen lots of commands, especially in the second half of the book. And this is really the last one. This is the last time Paul is going to say, here's what I want you to do. Here's the action steps you need to take. And so before we get into talking about what those action steps are, I want us to focus some attention on who it is, who it is that has caused Paul to give those kind of commands. What is the problem that it has arisen or is arising or will arise in the church at Rome that would cause Paul to say, you need to keep your eye on those folks and you need to stay away from them because they're causing all kinds of problems. So I want us to look for a little while about who are, as the text says, those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you have heard. That's in the middle of verse 17 if you want to look at it. Well, these guys are essentially false teachers. They're essentially false teachers. You could label them as false prophets. Really, the Bible uses that phraseology interchangeably. And we don't know exactly what is the content of their error. We don't know what kind of false teaching the people are are encountering in Rome. There's one group of scholars who say that these guys who are the false teachers who are coming to Rome really are like the Judaizers we read about in Galatians. In Galatians, there seem to be a group of people who have come into the church after Paul preached the gospel there, a gospel of grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. Another group of people come in and they say, oh yeah, well, it's not really grace alone. It's grace and works that leads to salvation. You see, it's not just by grace through faith in Jesus Christ we're saved. We need grace We need faith, we need Jesus, but we also need circumcision, we also need dietary laws, we also need all these rules and regulations about Sabbaths and holidays and festivals. And so Paul says to the church at Galatia, he says, listen, I can't believe believe you guys are so quickly forsaking the true gospel for a message that is not the gospel at all. It is not good news if someone comes in and says, you need Jesus and something else in order to be saved. That's bad news, because the good news of the gospel is you only need Jesus to be saved. Oh, man, that's what we want to hear. That's what we want to celebrate, that Jesus alone provides us salvation. And so there's some people that think that what the church at Rome is dealing with is like that, that they're Judaizers who are coming in and saying, you need Jesus and a bunch of rules in order to be saved. There are other people who are on the far other end of the spectrum who say, these false teachers in Rome, they're not rule keepers, they're rule breakers. They are antinomian libertines who say, you got Jesus, do whatever you want. Live however you want. Drink whatever you want. Eat whatever you want. Sleep with whoever you want. Go wherever you want. You catch where I'm going with this? There are some people who think that the false teachers are those who are too restrictive. And then there are other people who think that the false teachers are too uh, full of liberty. And some of that comes from the way we read Romans chapter 14 and Paul dealing with kind of those ends of the spectrum. Here's the point, I think. We don't know exactly what these guys were teaching. We, we don't know exactly what was the content of their false teaching, and that's a good thing for us. It's a good thing that we don't nail down exactly what their problem was, because then we're able to take the principles and we're able to apply them to any and all false teachers today. 
So, so, so it's not as if, if we knew they were, they were Judaizers, we would say, well, this is how you deal with Judaizers. And if we knew they were Libertines, then we would say, this is how you deal with antinomian Libertines. But because we don't know who they are, we can say these principles are, are applicable to all kinds of false teachers, no matter what the content of their false teaching is. Does that make sense? So there's a little more universal application as we study this text today. All right? Jesus, in his ministry, talked about false teachers. It's not a new warning. It's something that's consistent throughout the New Testament. Jesus says this in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15 and 16. He says, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. What a picture, right? He says, Beware of the false prophets because they're like this. They're like a wolf that comes in. He's dressed in sheep's clothes, but inwardly he's a wolf. And not just a wolf... A hungry wolf, right? That's a pretty vivid picture of of what a false prophet or a false teacher is. He goes on to say, You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles, are they? He says, This is real. There are going to be people that come into the church and they may look like a sheep. They may look like one of you because they're dressed up like that. But inside, deep inside, they're a wolf. And a hungry wolf. Paul talks about it to the elders of the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. He's set up shop there for three years. He's preached the gospel to them. And as he gets ready to leave, this is what he says. Acts chapter 20, verse 27. He says, For I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on your guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know... I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day, for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among those who are sanctified. You catch that? Jesus says, I want you to be awake. I want you to be alert because there are going to be people who show up that look like sheaves, but they're really wolves. And Paul says, Paul says to the church at Ephesus, as soon as I leave, as soon as I leave after three years of preaching you, someone else is going to come in with a different message. And I want you to be on the alert for that. I want you to be awake to that because the wolves are going to come in from the outside. But even more scary, he says, even from among yourselves, men will rise up who will teach perverse things. He says, not every threat comes from the outside. Sometimes it develops from the inside. All this is scary, but I'm thankful to God that he's given us warnings like this. Aren't you? Thankful to God that he's given us a heads up like this. I want you to also notice in the beginning of of verse, or in the middle of verse 17, that the problem is that these false teachers are doing harm to the body. It's It's not as if the problem is just they exist, or just that they have a wrong understanding of the gospel or of the word of God. The problem is they are doing great harm to the body. It says they are they are they are um, facilitating dissensions and hindrances. Dissensions and hindrances. In other words, they come in and they are they're causing trouble, causing pain, causing destruction. So that's the problem. False teachers coming in to harm the body. And here's the action step. Look at the beginning of verse 17. He says, Now I urge you, brethren. Keep your eye on those men. I urge you to keep your eye on them. The word that's used there, keep your eye on them, in the Greek, is the same word we get our English scope from. 
microscope or telescope or just any kind of scope, right? It, it's this picture of not just seeing something, but really examining it closely. It's to look at with care, to examine fully, to scrutinize intensely. Maybe the best way I can sum this up is this is what I'm going to say to the boys who come to my house uh, to date my girls. Right? I'm, I'm going to keep my eye on you. This is the tone of that. I don't trust you. I think you've got maybe bad intentions. And I'm responsible for her. And I'm keeping my eye on you. Does that make sense? This is what Paul is saying to the church at Rome. Keep your eye on them. Don't just look at them. Don't just recognize them. Study them intensely. And don't let them out of your sight. Because when you let the wolf out of your sight, what's he going to do? He's going to kill something. He's going to destroy something. And so he says to the church, you keep your eye on them. You watch them carefully. And then he says, not only that, he says, turn away from them. So the first thing is we've got to mark them out. We've got to keep our eye on them. We've got to know them and study them. Scrutinize them. And we turn away from them is what he says. And turn away from them at the end of verse 17. And what we notice in that is right off the bat, there's something different going on here than was going on in chapter 14. You you remember in chapter 14, we saw differences within the church. Maybe people had differences about what we should eat and what we should drink. Maybe people had differences about what day we should gather together for worship or what kind of clothes we should wear. Do you remember that whole talk about gray areas? And how when we as brothers and sisters in Christ have differences in gray areas or secondary matters, what should our response be? Well, our response in chapter 14 should be tolerance, acceptance, love, and embrace. Recognizing that these matters, they're not all that important. These these matters are not primary. They're not gospel matters. What I want you to see here is that that is not Paul's approach when it comes to primary matters. In chapter 14, we're dealing with secondary matters. We're dealing with gray areas. In chapter 16, when it comes to these false teachers, we're talking about essential, central gospel truths. And he says, when someone comes in and there's a difference in that, you keep your eye on them and you stay away from them. It's not a message of tolerance. It's not a message of acceptance. It's not a message of patience. It is a message, as one scholar says, you you mark out the heretics And the heretics are to be spurned. Spurned. Not burned, necessarily. That's happened in the history of the church. But spurned. We don't toy with the heretics. Because remember, the picture that Jesus paints is, they're a wolf, dressed like a sheep. And if you're a good shepherd, and you know there's a wolf running around amongst your flock, what do you do? You try to make friends with it? Pet it? Feed it? No, you might kill it, run it off, you recognize it as a danger. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's saying, listen, guys, I want you to be on the alert. I want you to look out. There are men, he says in verse 17, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned. Turn away from them. Turn away from them. So now, Having identified these people and having identified uh, the call to action, keep your eye on them and stay away from them, he gives us a little more information about how they operate. Look at verse 18. He says, For such men are slaves, not of the Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. It seems that these false teachers 
who are wolves in sheep's clothing really only care about themselves. They don't care about the church. They don't care about the sheep. They don't care about Christ. They only care about themselves. In fact, some of the translations say um, their, their God is their own appetite, their own belly. All they care about is filling their bellies up. That sounds like a wolf, doesn't it? What's a wolf care about? Getting fed, right? Doesn't care what he has to do to get fed as long as he can fill his belly up. He says they are slaves, not of the Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And maybe this is the reason why some people think these guys are prone to licentiousness, prone to libertinism. Maybe they're given to various lusts and they're manipulating and abusing their position as teacher to satisfy their own fleshly desires. And you don't have to go far to read headlines to see that that is happening all over the church. Men in positions of authority and influence abusing that position to indulge the flesh in a number of different ways. Paul says that's what they're about. At the root, the problem seems to be idolatry. Not serving Christ, not worshiping Christ, not giving your life for him, but serving yourself, satisfying yourself, living only for self. That's the essence of idolatry, right? He says such men are slaves, not of the Lord Christ, but of their own appetites. And then he says this, this is scary. He says, by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. It's scary to me because I know how prone I am to be drawn to a smooth talker or a slick presentation or an outrageous personality. We, church, must be careful to analyze everything that we hear. Everything that we hear, we must analyze and weigh against the scriptures. The Bible The Word of God is our standard for all matters of faith and practice, right? It is the supreme standard. So so if a preacher says, listen to me, if I'm saying something to you ever that contradicts the Word of God, you take the Word of God over my Word every day. I am a fallen, sinful, finite man, and the Word of God is infallible, inerrant, perfect in every way. So we want to be students of the word of God so that we can see the errors when they come. He says these guys with their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. Douglas Moo says, we need to evaluate what is being said on the basis of its content, not just its style. False teachers often gain a hearing because they can be so engaging, so much fun to listen to. They disguise a lack of truth with smooth words. I think he's right. And I think we see it all the time when we deal with babies. You ever held a little baby in your arms? You know you can say anything in the world you want to to that baby, as long as you say it in the right voice. Oh, you're such a pain in my neck. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You kept me up all night last night. Yes, you did. Yes, you did. You could say the most terrible things to a baby, As long as you say it with the right tone, with the right inflection, right? With that sing-song voice, you can say anything in the world that you want to to a baby. And I wonder how many of us are just like those babies. We'll let somebody say anything in the world to us. As long as they've got a nice suit. As long as they've got a big smile and straight teeth. As long as they've got a slick multimedia presentation, maybe a big auditorium to speak from, maybe a nice pulpit, we'll let some people say anything in the world to us 
Because we're not concerned about the content, we're only concerned about the style. And I believe this is a call for the church to be concerned primarily, supremely, about content and not about style at all. We don't want to be the little baby cooing all the way as a man. A false teacher, a false prophet leads us to hell. And we giggle and we laugh all the way to the flames. This is what's at stake here, folks. We've got to be so careful. Douglas Moo summed it up this way when he's talking about the false teachers. He says, number one, they serve themselves rather than Christ. That's their motive. They serve themselves rather than Christ. Their motive is selfish. He says, number two, they're crafty and they're effective speakers. That's the means. How do they get, how do they get where they're trying to get? They, they're smooth talkers. They're slick. They're well-dressed. They're sharp. They're witty. They're winsome. That's the means And then he says, number three, they create divisions in the church. That's the result. What's the end they're looking for? Fill up their own bellies, tear down the church. How do they get there? Smooth talking. So how do we avoid that? How do we avoid getting caught in that trap? Well, I'm going to tell you later on that we need to be experts in the word of God. We need to be experts in the word of God. We need to be familiar with God's word so that we can spot the lies when they come our way. Verse 19. Paul shifts gears a little bit and gives them some encouragement as they brace themselves for the onslaught of these wolves, as they ready themselves for the attack. He says, I want to encourage you a little bit. Verse 19, the word, the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. Right? That's a good word, right? I'm hearing about your obedience. I'm hearing that you're staying on the right track. I'm hearing good things about you. But I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. You're on the right track, but I want you to stay on the right track. I want you to be wise about things that are good. I want you to be experts in good, and I want you to be innocent. I want you to be babies when it comes to evil. I want you to know the truth and reject the lie. Jesus says similar thing in Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, when he says, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. Shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. As a sheep in the midst of wolves. Paul says something similar to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14 he says. Brethren do not be children in your thinking. In other words grow up a little bit. Don't be the baby. Who only cares about the tone. He says do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants. But in your thinking be mature. That's what I want to call us to. I want to call us to mature thinking. I want to call us to deep thinking. And I want to give a word of encouragement that you, you, you're doing that. And we're two years into a study of Romans. We've looked through a microscope at so much of the gospel in Romans. And you've stuck with it. It hasn't been an easy study. It hasn't been a light study. It hasn't been slick words. It's been simply the word of God. And you've looked at it and you've examined it closely. And I think you are therefore more equipped to deal with the false teachers when they, come your, when they knock on your door with magazines. When they knock on your door with all kinds of materials to present. When they, when they knock on your door and say, do you have a minute to talk about Jesus? Your answer needs to be, yeah. What do you want to know about him? Yeah. Boom! Right? Got a minute to talk about Jesus? I have all day to talk about Jesus. What would you like to know about him? You want to be ready for those things, right? Look at verse 20. This is so good too. Not only do we have a little bit of encouragement as they brace themselves for the attack, we've got a promise and a prophecy that that in the end, the Lord wins, and because we are His, we win. Look what he says in verse 
20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. One of my favorite phrases lately, and I want to keep this in my mind all the time, is that it won't always be like this. This has been a hard week. This has been a hard week for a lot of people in Harrisburg. I mean, there, I've gotten some strange phone calls this week. Some suffering and some situations that I, they don't teach us about in school. It's been a hard week, and I want to hang on to the fact that it won't always be like this. There is coming a day when there will be no more sickness and no more pain and no more suffering and no more sin. It won't always be like this, and I want to remember that, and that's part of what Paul is doing here at the end of this. When he braces them for the false teachers, he reminds them it's not always going to be like this because soon, soon the God of peace will crush Satan under your feet. This is a reference to what scholars call the Proto-Evangelium, the first gospel. You know when the first gospel was preached? The very first bit of gospel was preached in, way back in Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, after Adam and Eve eat the fruit, the Lord comes back into the garden. They've committed sin. Their eyes are open, they're naked, and they're ashamed, and they hide from the Lord. You remember that? And the Lord comes to find them. He says, where are you? What have you done? And they have this whole exchange where Adam tries to blame the woman, right? And then goes even further and tries to blame God, the woman that you gave me. She gave me this fruit to eat. Adam's responsible. We see that all throughout Scripture. And God, in this conversation, delivers the consequences of their sin. Remember this? He talks to the man, says, you'll sweat, you'll toil. The earth won't grow things like it should. You're going to really struggle forever. Because the curse extends even to the ground. He says to the woman, your pain's going to be multiplied in childbirth. Your relationship with your husband is going to be strained in ways that it wouldn't be apart from this. And then he looks at the serpent. You remember this? He looks at the serpent, the one who tempted Eve, Satan. He says, on your belly you'll go and you'll eat the dust of the earth. And he says, and a day is coming when you will strike the seed of the woman on the heel. You will wound the seed of the woman on his heel. Okay, Think about this. Who's the seed of the woman? That's Jesus. What does it look like for him to be wounded on the heel? That's Good Friday. All all of this is coming up this week. We want to think about this this week as Jesus is betrayed, accused, beaten, mocked, scorned, and crucified. In a lot of ways, that is the serpent striking him on the heel. But what's he say next? You will, strike the, you will strike the seed of the woman on the heel, but he will crush your head. Ha! You might get him on the heel, but he'll crush your head. That's next Sunday morning. We're going to celebrate the head crusher. We're going to rejoice over the one who crushes the head of the serpent. Jesus has ultimate victory because of his death, burial, and resurrection. And so Paul says to the church, he says, the day is coming, the day is coming, and it's coming soon when the, when the head of the snake will be crushed under your heel. So we get to participate in that victory. And so as I'm thinking about this, I'm thinking about Genesis chapter 3 and all of this, uh, that one day the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. I want to remember he's done that. That's been done. We celebrate it next week. We celebrate this week. Jesus has crushed the head of the serpent. I want to celebrate also that he is doing that. It's not just a past tense thing. This victory over Satan is not just a past tense thing. It's a present tense thing. He is crushing the head of the serpent even now as we live for him by faith. 
as we live out the obedience of the faith, as Paul says in Romans. Not only has he done that, and not only is he doing that, but he will do that. One day, one day, every eye will see, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father, right? That's a glorious day that is coming. So we can be encouraged in the midst of the present struggle, in the midst of the present struggle, we know that Jesus has already gained the victory. We can know that Jesus is gaining the victory in our lives. And we can know that a day is coming when there will be no doubt about the victory. And we can be encouraged and stand firm against the schemes of Satan because of that. And then look how he wraps this up. He says, not only is there a promise that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. But then he closes by saying, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. Grace be with you. Oh man, there's nothing I desire more for you than the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The grace of God in Jesus Christ. Because I know, I know that we're all sinners. I know that we have broken the law. We've spurned God. We have rebelled against Him and opposed Him. We are blasphemers and idolaters and adulterers and all number of sin. We've done it, right? And because we are sinners, we deserve death. We deserve judgment. We deserve wrath. We deserve hell because of our sin. And God would be perfectly just to give us that. That would be justice. That would be justice on display. But not only is God a God of justice, he's a God of grace. And so he sent his son, who was without sin, to come and live amongst us and live a perfect life. And not only to live, but to die. And not just to die, but to die as a sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice for us. That is, the one who knew no sin became sin for us. He took our sin upon his shoulders and suffered the wrath and the judgment and the death and the hell that we deserve. And not only did he experience that, not only did he die, they buried him. And on the third day, he rose again in victory over sin and death and hell and offers us life. He offers us life. Not by earning it, not by doing, not by striving, but by trusting, by believing, by depending on him. How are you saved? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Therefore, repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Grace to you. And grace is only available through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Two applications today, then we're done. Number one, false teachers are out there. Maybe they're even in here. False teachers are real, and they are really dangerous. False teachers are real, and they're really dangerous. Therefore, be alert. Wake up. Have your eyes open. False teachers that are on the outside are easy to spot. Sometimes when we think of false teachers, we think of people who have an entirely different worldview. People who adhere to an entire different, uh, entirely different religion. We think about Buddhists, or we think about Muslims, or we think about some other group. And yeah, we could label them as false teachers, but they're easy to spot. And so to speak, the battle lines are clearly drawn with them. They don't scare me nearly as much as the false teachers who come from the inside. False teachers who claim to be Christians. False teachers who are officers in the church. False teachers who claim the name of Christ. I think they're a bigger problem. And we need to recognize that they are wolves. And the wolf is out to eat the sheep. The wolf doesn't want to smell the sheep. He doesn't want to get to know the sheep. 
He doesn't want to befriend the sheep. He wants to eat the sheep. He wants to kill the sheep. We need to remember that, guys. This is not a small thing we're messing with here. This is not a simple, easy, nice thing we're messing with here. It's very dangerous. So false teachers are not to be toyed with. Listen to what Paul tells the church at Corinth about false teachers. He says, for such men, this is chapter 11, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. Disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder. For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. You catch that? He says, you know what Satan does? You know what Satan does when he comes to tempt you? Does he look like a big, nasty, scary monster? No. He looks like your best friend, right? He's not offering something to you that seems like, good, that seems like poison, that smells like poison and tastes like poison. No, he offers you something sweet. Something that's a delight to the eyes. Something that would fill up your belly. He says, no, one, no wonder the false prophets come in claiming to be servants of righteousness. No wonder they come in claiming to be servants of light. That's the way Satan does. And they are simply instruments of Satan. Do you catch that? That the false teachers, the false prophets are simply instruments of Satan and following his MO. So what I want you to see is that false teachers are there. They're here. They're real. They're really dangerous. So we've got to be awake and we've got to be alert. They may come knock on your door this afternoon. They may be sitting at your table at lunch. Be awake and be alert. And in order to know them, this is application number two, we must know the Word of God. We must know the Word of God in order to be able to spot the false teachers. I feel like a lot of us in this church, in this town, are sitting ducks for the false teachers. We are easy prey for the false teachers because we have not done any hard work to know the scriptures. We don't want to do any hard work to know the scriptures. We are content to sit back and simply let someone else spoon feed us what we need to know. This scares me. This scares me in my role that so many of you are perfectly content to just sit back and take whatever I feed you week in and week out. Hey, we trust Chris. We know Chris. We just, he feeds us and we just, we just eat it up. My fear is that posture is dangerous because what happens when someone else comes along or what, happen, what happens if, God forbid it, but what happens if I go astray or someone else comes along with a better spoon, with a tastier potion, and you're in this posture where you've just become prone to just sit back and say, whatever you feed me, I'll eat it. You're slick, you're smart, you're kind, you're happy. Just feed me. And what if all the while you just take in poison from someone else? Guys, we've got to be active in our listening. We are responsible not just for what we teach, but for what we are taught. All of us are. We've got to be active in our listening, constantly weighing what we hear from anyone. What you hear from your mom needs to be weighed, needs to be weighed against the scriptures. What you hear from your grandma needs to be weighed against, your, against the scriptures. What you hear from me week in and week out, you need to be asking yourself, is this what the Bible says? Is this what the Bible says or is this just Chris talking? You need to be weighing all of it against the scriptures. We need to be like more, more like the church at Berea. In Acts chapter 17, it says, Now these from Berea were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica. I want you to be noble-minded 
Listen to this. He says, they were more noble-minded than those at Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. I want you to be like that. I want to be like that. I want to receive the word of God with all eagerness. When someone stands up to preach, I want to say, all right, I want to hear, I want to hear, I want to hear. And then I want to receive it, and I want to go straight back to the book and say, does it, does it line up? Does it line up? I know the guy. I know his life. But does his word line up with God's word? Because that is ultimately the standard. So we need to be like them. We need to know the word of God in order to be able to spot the false teachers when they come our way. John Stott gives three tests that will help us weigh the teaching. Three simple tests. One is biblical. One is Christological. That's a big word, but I'll explain it in a minute. And one is moral. Biblical, Christological, and moral. Three questions that we need to ask ourselves when we hear someone teaching. Number one, does it agree with Scripture? That's the biggest question. I could stand up here today, tell you stories, recite poems, do illustrations. The question is, does it agree with Scripture? One of my favorite preachers says, I could care less about what you think or how you feel or about something you've seen in a bathroom in a vision. I want to know what the Word of God says about it. Oh, let us be that kind of people. Does it agree with Scripture? Number two, Christological test. Does it glorify the Lord Christ? Is it about His glory? Or is the guy standing up talking or the guy sitting down at your table teaching all about himself? Is it about Christ Or is it about the messenger? Does it agree with scripture? Does it glorify Christ? The third test is moral. Does it promote goodness? And not evil. Does it promote goodness and godliness? Or does it promote selfishness and lust? Does it agree with scripture? Does it glorify the Lord Christ? And does it promote goodness? Those are three good questions to be asking yourself next time you turn on the radio. And hear somebody preaching. Next time you turn on the TV. Hear somebody preaching. Be careful. Be careful with your ears what you hear, right? It can be really dangerous. So Paul has spent this last chapter, he's saying, hey, say hello to Phoebe. When she gets there, treat her well because she's a really good servant. Oh, and also say hello to these 26 people I know. I love them. They're my brothers and sisters, and I appreciate what they're doing. So say hello to them when you get to see them. And then he says, but watch out. Watch out for these guys because they're going to cause all kinds of problems. I think it really fits. Just, oh man, I could go on and on about this. Just like if you were traveling to Texas, I'd have a list of guys to say hello to when you go to Texas. Good teachers, faithfully expositing the scriptures and leading people in biblical, Christ-centered teaching. And there would be a couple of guys in Texas I would say, watch, watch out for those guys. Got a good suit and a good smile. He's not teaching the things in accordance with Scripture, at least not all of it. So be careful who you listen to. You're accountable for what you learn. Let's stand together and pray. God, we do thank you for your grace. We recognize that it is only by grace that we stand, and we want grace to spread to our neighbors. We want grace to spread to the nations as we take the gospel. We want to we wish For our friends, what Paul wishes for the church at Rome, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. God, I pray that you'll bring grace to men and women and boys and girls in this room today. Teach them about their sin. Teach them about judgment against sin. And teach them about Christ who came to die for sinners and rescue sinners. Teach them about Christ who died for our sins and was buried and was raised the third day according to the scriptures. Teach them about Christ who can redeem. 
teach them about Christ who can save. God, I pray that you give, by your grace, men and women and boys and girls, repentance to turn away from their sin and faith to trust in Jesus Christ. I pray that you do that today for their sake, but mostly for your sake, for your name's sake, that you would receive the praise that you are due. And I want to pray for your church. Oh, God. So many of us are just little babies willing to listen to anything as long as it's the right tone. So many of us are little babies sitting in the high chair waiting for someone else to feed us. God, we want to grow up by your grace. We want to grow up in the faith. We want to know your word so that when the lies come, when the lies come, we'll know and we'll keep our eye on those teachers and we'll stay away from them. That the wolves won't come into this place and devour the sheep. Got to feel a weight of responsibility as a pastor of this body. I feel a weight to guard them from the sheep or from the wolves. But, but I know I can't always. So I pray that you grow them up. Grow your people up so they can spot the wolves themselves and stay away from them. God, we want to be your people. We want to live for you, but we know there's an opponent, there's an enemy. He wants to kill and steal and destroy. We'll try everything he can, so God protect us. Keep us awake and alert. In Christ's name, amen.